This is a Federal News Network podcast. The U.S. military establishment is so focused on future technology that it risks national security right now. That's the thesis of my next guest. She argues an obsession with future and futuristic technology can lead planners off course. Here with more, Brookings Foreign Policy Fellow Amy Nelson. Ms. Nelson, good to have you in. Hi, thanks so much for having me. And to be in studio, that's kind of exciting for us these days. So what are you saying? We have this future command, we have all these OTA efforts going on to purchase new technologies. What's the issue? Sure. And that is no small feat, a long time coming. It's good that we're executing all these plans to improve procurement and partner with the private sector and to stay on the cutting edge of technologies generally and those with military applications specifically. The problem, I think, is broader. It's a kind of a national obsession right now, a distraction, a being consumed with what's bright and shiny and coming over the horizon instead of, you know, focusing on the planning that needs to happen for more imminent threats. Because they talk in military planning circles about the competitive edge or the offset, and they refer to some of the technologies developed that were revolutionary back in the 70s. Stealth seems old hat now, but it was really something hot and truly precision-guided missiles and all of these things that everybody has now. And so how are they to tell what really could bear fruit in terms of the strategic offset in reality versus what is just pie in the sky? Yeah, that's a great question, Tom. And one of the concerns I have related to this futurist obsession is that word offset, because we seem to be moving into a space of perpetual offset, which basically means technology-driven arms racing. So who knows where that edge is? It's hard to tell. But yet you need an offset if you're going to win. In theory, but there are so many more variables to warfare now. So is it the fastest? Is it the most lethal? Is it the weapon that can travel farthest? Uh, It depends on the scenario, and it depends on a myriad of factors. Because they are developing, say, a new bomber right now, and who knows when that will actually fly or when it will be producible, because I'm thinking of the adaption of a old airframe into a tanker, and that's about 10 years late. And that was supposed to be just put a gas tank in and a nozzle, and you're all set to go. So is it also the fact that these things maybe never materialize? Is that part of the issue? Look, technology innovation is hard. It's a hard problem. And timelines are particularly difficult to nail down. Talk about struggling at predicting the future. We're famously bad at estimating timelines to fruition. And there's a lot of information out there about you know the timelines of future technologies, but they're all guesstimates, essentially. And if you use the military, say, to affect international affairs, maybe looking at Russia right now, which in many people's opinion is punching way above its weight as a country in terms of its economy and its population, its defense industrial base. And most of what they are going to Ukraine or next to Ukraine with, we don't know at this point if they're going to Ukraine, is old platforms that have just been updated with technology. Sometimes it's not even all that cutting edge, but it seems cutting edge and it adds up to something that has got the world on its toes. Yeah, and does it even matter, or is it just Russia's willingness to use force relative to everyone else's willingness to use force? An interesting aspect of that is that we actually have an arms control treaty that was explicitly designed to forestall the movement of those kinds of platforms and systems to border regions to create military surprise. So things don't always work out as we plan for them to. All right, so how should the DOD think about the future? What's a rational way to do it that does maintain deterrence and, frankly, the ability, as they say, to fight and win the nation's wars? 
Yeah, that's a great question. I think it has a lot to do with understanding which threats are imminent and which threats are likely and various combinations of those factors. So shouldn't we already be preparing for the next pandemic? I don't think we are. How about even the next wave of this pandemic? What does that preparation look like? And it's about tough choices and trade-offs and pushing policymakers to really act on urgent and imminent problems. Even our nuclear force posture, are we just sticking with the same because the future is uncertain? Or does that warrant a more rigorous thinking about how we might use our nuclear weapons in a conflict today? not in the Cold War and not in the future. So that really is your first problem that you've listed in your essay about future obsession, as you call it, is not preparing for what's happening right now. Exactly. And it's a pervasive sentiment we felt. It's in DOD. It's in defense planning. It's coming out of Madison Avenue. And it's all over social media and all the other forms of media we consume. And so the question was really like, is there an element of escapism happening here? Are we trying to escape a miserable present by sort of disappearing into a bright and flashy future. We're speaking with Amy Nelson. She's a fellow in the Foreign Policy Program at the Center for Strategy and Security and Technology at Brookings. And so what would you change about the whole process here? I mean, how do they, again, it's a balancing. You can't ignore the future. Sure. Absolutely. And there, there's a lot that we say about uh, decision-making biases. And I think that the first step is really to be aware of the bias imposed by this kind of future obsession and really trading off likely scenarios for kind of flashy ones. And you mentioned the drunkard's search, mm. where an obsession with you know a drunk trying to find his keys looks under the lamppost because that's where the light is. You liken that to the nuclear war scenarios that were assumed in the post-World War II era, the Cold War era, that there would be this massive, sudden, and unexpected attack, which never did materialize. Yeah, and yet those assumptions remained unquestioned for years. So now now what is it? Is it the Terminator scenario we've all been fixated on for quite some time, where there are good and bad robots and that it's playing out on the battlefield, or maybe to some lesser extent where automation is playing a bigger role? We have to make sure that science fiction isn't biasing our thinking when we plan for the future. And also, I guess, understanding what is likely in the world. I asked one planner a number of years ago, I said, well, if China has a five million person army or something, I don't know what they've got, and they were going to invade the United States, shouldn't we be prepared? It was kind of a, a question I didn't really take seriously myself. He said, well, it would probably take them five years to build up the capability to do that. So we would see that before it happened. Absolutely. We really have to be on alert for all these kinds of indicators, especially when it comes to artificial intelligence, where there are so many unknowns about what our adversaries actually are innovating, how they're integrating that into their military, and how they plan to operationalize it on the battlefield. So finding the right indicators to track that progress efficiently is going to be key. Because that that kind of doctrine really is crucial because the doctrine that starts at the top expands into different programs for mm -hmm. the different armed services and for the fourth estate in defense. And that in turn translates into procurement programs and dollar allocations. And if you're 1% off at the doctrinal level, mm -hmm. then by the time you get to the spending level, you could be billions of dollars off. Yeah, and myths are powerful and fear is motivational. So if we're afraid of being offset by another nation's military, we're likely to make a whole bunch of decisions that really skew those calculations. So how should planners then think differently from what they are now? 
we need to think about a measured response and weighing contemporary scenarios, realistic scenarios, more proximal scenarios with the sort of pie-in-the-sky, long-term future scenarios. Should we be tracking how artificial intelligence is likely to impact operational level of, of conflict on the battlefield in the future? Absolutely. But we should really be doubling down on, on more imminent threats and concerns. What have we seen before that's likely to be repeated? And that's the stuff we don't want to miss. That's the stuff where there's no excuse for missing. Because it seems like the most likely thing is not atom bombs falling from the skies so much as a cyber attack. Exactly. And you've got to give them credit for trying to be prepared for that. They talk about it enough. Sure. And, you know, there are cyber attacks all day, every day. It's already here. So that's absolutely a more imminent concern, a more urgent concern. And let's make the trade-off, you know, against nuclear weapons, our planning and posture, and, and let's think hard about what the realities are. And finally, it sounds like you're arguing that we should look beyond pure military threats from other nations as dangerous to our national security. Some people think the climate is one of those threats because of what it could do to facilities and cities and so forth. Is that a fair way to put it? Yeah, definitely. Threats come in all forms, and we need to think more broadly about our most urgent threats. I know with the the pandemic and climate change, there are explicit Department of Defense implications of these threats, but they're broader reaching than the Department of Defense. They affect the civilian population, and one might argue that those are the most urgent threats. So a more resilient society might need a less all-encompassing military. We have, I saw the other day, one school district called in the National Guard to substitute teach in schools, which I thought, we are really getting far down a road that probably we don't want to be. Yeah, that's that's a great point and devastating. How do we make our society more resilient, but in a way that everyone doesn't have to go it alone? Amy Nelson is a fellow in the Foreign Policy Program at the Center for Strategy, Security, and Technology at Brookings. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. We'll post this interview along with a link to her essay at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome, and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader, and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person, personally, was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing 
we were in regular housing, but people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly 
gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it, it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online.